Let's pray. I am coming to the cross. I am poor and weak and blind. I am counting all but dross. I shall full salvation find. Long my heart has sighed for thee. Long has evil reigned within. Jesus sweetly speaks to me. I will cleanse you from all sin. Here I give my all to thee. Friends and time and earthly store. Soul and body thine to be. Holy thine forevermore. In the promises I trust. Now I feel the blood applied. I am prostrate in the dust. I with Christ am crucified. Jesus comes. He fills my soul. Perfected in him I am. I am every whit made whole. Glory, glory to the Lamb. Humbly at thy cross I bow. Save me, Jesus. Save me now. Amen. She was nearly blind. She was born on April the 14th, 1866 to Irish immigrants. Life was hard. And from the age of three, her vision began to fail. To add insult to injury, Annie's mother died when she was eight of tuberculosis. Her two young sisters were farmed out to relatives, and Annie tried to care for her father by herself. But at the age of nine, she was sent to Massachusetts State Poorhouse in Tewksbury. Her poor vision, though, became a blessing in disguise, and at the age of 14, a new institute welcomed her into their open arms, the Perkins Institute for the Blind. Six years later, at the age of 20, Annie would graduate from college, and then on March the 3rd, 1887, Annie stepped on a train, uh, stepped, stepped from a train into a small town in Alabama, where she was met by a young mother named Kate. Kate had a daughter who had been born with all of her senses, but at the age of 19 months, she had become deaf and blind. Kate's daughter's name, as you might guess, was Helen. So began the fascinating story of a teacher who was almost blind and who uh, opened the world to a seven-year-old child who could not see, who could not speak, and who could not hear. Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller would be inseparable in life. It was indeed the blind leading the blind. In fact, they would even be united in death for in Washington Cathedral, along with presidents like Woodrow Wilson and his wife Edith, there would be a special chapel reserved for them. And there, Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller would be buried in the chapel together in Washington's Cathedral. It was long after Annie's death that Helen Keller spoke at a ceremony at Radcliffe College where she had attended and received her degree. That day a fountain 
was being dedicated to the honor of Annie Sullivan, Helen's teacher. Although Helen could speak at this time, although Helen was a prolific author at this time, although Helen was a world traveler at this time, although uh, she was welcomed in the halls of parliament, in the courts of kings and queens, although she was a highly intelligent woman and had made speeches all over the world, on that day, emotion overwhelmed Helen Keller. And when it came time for her to speak at the dedication of the flowing fountain, she uttered one word. One word, just one word. The same word that was signed into her hand over and over by her teacher. The word that had opened her world. The word that had connected her back to the land of the living. At that moment, standing before a fountain in Boston, Helen's mind went back to a little Alabama town where she had raced from the house so frustrated and went to her favorite hideout by the well. Her teacher Annie had found her and uh, had begun to pump water from the well and as it splashed over Helen's hands, Annie began to sign that one word over and over again into Helen's hands. Until, from the memory dredged up from when she was 19 months old, she remembered a word, a word that she had spoken, and she began to try to speak that single word, that same word that the now eloquent Helen spoke at a dedication ceremony 73 years later. The shortest public speech in history. A single word. That word, water. I share this with you this morning because I see some great parallels between the story of Annie and Kate and Helen I see parallels between our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father, and us. You see, we wind up being like Helen, don't we? We come into this world created for wonderful things, and somehow we can't see. Somehow we wind up being spiritually blind. We wind up being spiritually deaf and very much in the darkness of a world that offers so much that we have no idea is even there. Helen didn't deserve to be deaf or to be blind. She didn't deserve that, but it was her lot. She didn't deserve to have any special attention paid to her to restore her into connection with the world, really. She hadn't done anything to earn that. And yet, she had a mother who loved her and wanted her to connect with the world. And so her mother, out of love for her, got Kate. I'm sorry, got her mother Kate, got Annie. Got someone who could get into Helen's world and make contact with her. 
and could bring her out of the darkness and into the wonderful world that was around her that she had not much connection with at all. That's like our Heavenly Father loved us when we were in the darkness of sin and there was nothing that we could do about it. We just wound up in that spot, separated from God, separated from the very uh, purposes that He created us for, separated and in darkness and alone, and just like Helen, uncooperative with the one who had been sent to help. And yet, into our blindness, and into our darkness, and into our silence, Jesus comes. And he persists. And he taps us on the shoulder. And ultimately, just like Helen found a connection, Jesus finds a connection with us. And he brings us to that point where all of a sudden we're brought back into a world that has life. We're brought out of the darkness and loneliness that we were in and into a whole new realm of life. The Beatitudes are not, as many people try to make them, just a list of moral teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is not just moralistic ramblings by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we can't take them and just look at them and pick and choose, say, well, yeah, I want to see God, so I want to be pure in heart. I want to, uh, to do this, and so I'll do that. It doesn't work like that. Because even though all of these different things that we read here in the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount are wonderful, every one of them is fantastic, we don't do the things that are character uh, descriptions in hopes of getting the blessing that's supposed to be there. That's not how it works. This is a description, a progressive description of life. It's a progressive description of life in Christ. Remember that Jesus Christ, as he stands there giving this sermon, we are hearing the very words of God. We are hearing the words of our Creator. And he is telling us, describing a life very different than the life that we have had before. And he starts at the beginning. We begin, as I've told you, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through the progression today, but it all begins not when we decide that we're going to be better. It begins when we decide that we can't on our own ever be better. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are blind and helpless and can't even comprehend what these words really mean. Whenever we realize that we're poor and that we're helpless and that we need help from outside our little world of darkness and blindness, that's when it all begins. And then it goes on. And we get to this point today where we hear, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Remember last week, we talked about the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
None of us. Remember I told you last week that the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you do get what you do not deserve. And so uh, we have all been recipients of God's mercy. We all deserve just utter darkness and death. But God, just like that mother Kate, looks down in love upon us and in mercy sends His Son to break through. And then the grace comes as He washes and cleanses us through His precious blood that was shed on the cross to bridge that gap between us and Him. He does that. And then we stand pure. We stand washed and cleansed. And you know, we need to look at the word, these words, pure in heart, because you see, pure means, comes from a word uh, that uh, the Greek word, that is the same word we get the word catharsis from. It means a cleansing of the mind or the emotions, or uh, it also means uh, uh, there are two different aspects to this. First of all, being cleansed from dirt or filth or contamination. And it's most often used uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to describe uh, like dirty laundry or, uh, or, or, or precious metals that were refined by fire until they were free from impurities. And uh, it was also used of grain that had been sifted till all the chaff and all the impurities had been removed from the grain. It was also uh, used uh, to, uh, uh, well, well we, we, we've covered all that. The second meaning is, again, the state of being pure. And again, in connection with precious metals like gold and silver. They have had the impurities removed from them, and so they are pure. It also has the connotation of not having a double allegiance, of not being double-minded, as it were. And uh, if we could look to James to get a little illumination on that, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, uh, says that uh, a double-minded man is unstable, in all of his ways. And double-minded means uh, that uh, you're trying to do what Jesus told us not to do, trying to serve God and the world. And uh, then we go on, and uh, in, in the fourth chapter of James, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So to purify our hearts, we need to quit being double-minded. And being double-minded means to try to serve God and serve the world at the same time. Trying to uh, have focus on both instead of just focusing on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and living under His Lordship. God has called us to be single-minded all through Scripture. We started out in the Garden of Eden, single-minded, just walking with the Lord, talking with Him. Everything was great. And then Satan came in the picture and distracted people 
from just looking at the Lord and keeping their eyes on Him. And from that point on, we've been trying to hide from Him and uh, trying to be like Him instead of letting Him be God and us be His creatures. But uh, back in Joshua, where he, he, he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served uh, beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. These people Joshua was addressing were all mixed up. They were trying to serve all different kinds of gods. They were trying to pick some from this one, some from that one, and kind of like people do today, kind of make up their own religion. And he was saying, you should be serving God. But if you're not going to serve him, make up your mind who God is. Make up your mind which one of these other gods you're really going to serve because you're going to be messed up all the way around until you finally come to a focus of some sort. And the thing is, if you start deciding, okay, I'm going to, and you, if you consciously start thinking, okay, I'm going to follow this path that's not God, if you follow that, if you, in, in your mind, if you just follow it out to its utter conclusion, you find that it ends in futility. The, it ends in death. Apart from being connected with God, we wind up having lives that are futile, lives that are dark, lives that are filled with blindness and deafness and missing out on so much that the world has to offer. In 1 Kings 18.21, the call came again to God's people from Elijah. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow him. Again, God calls us to make up our mind. You know, there's a young ruler that ran up to Jesus one day and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And he started, he said, I've kept those from my youth up. And said that Jesus looked on this young man and loved him. He said, one thing you lack, go and sell all your stuff, Give it to the poor and then come follow me. Jesus could see this man was double-minded. He was wanting to serve God and he was wanting to serve wealth. And so what does the young man do? He made up his mind, didn't he? He said he was sorrowful because he couldn't have both. He couldn't follow Jesus and hang on to the things that the world said made life worth living. He made up his mind and he turned around and he walked away. There are a lot of people that need to be more honest that ought to be honest like that young man was. He was honest and he made up his mind which was more important to him. He made up his mind and he set his focus and he headed out that way. And I want you to notice something. It says Jesus loved this young man, but Jesus didn't run after him. He let him go. Some people expect God 
to just grab us by the scruff of the neck. They would, you'd think that, it, that, that they would expect Jesus to, if, they, if, if he treated them like we expect God to treat us, that Jesus would have run after him and grabbed him and shook him by the shoulder and says, Man, don't you know what you're doing? Don't you know what you're missing? This young man already knew. He just needed to make up his mind. And there's so many today that sit in church pews around the world that are not pure in heart. They haven't yet made up their minds. They're still trying to serve God and everything else. They're double-minded and they haven't gotten their focus. They haven't focused on one or the other. And as long as you're double-minded, you're not going to be a good saint. You're not going to be a good sinner. You're not going to be good for anything because you're trying to do both and it just doesn't work. Or trying not to do both. See how mixed up it can be? So one way or another, you've got to make up your mind. Whenever you're pure in heart, you have a single focus on Him. The pure in heart are those who only desire one thing, and that's the reign of God, to live their lives daily, doing the best they can to please Him. As I was looking at this, I remembered a story a long time ago about a a boy that was wanting to go to watch a a movie, and his mom asked what it was rated. He said, oh, it's rated R. And uh, she said, well, you know, you shouldn't go see things like that. It's got stuff that's not good in it. He said, well, my friends have told me there's not much bad in it at all. It's just a little bit of bad stuff in it. And uh, the mother prayerfully considered how could she get something across to her son about this. And she just happened to glance outside and the Lord gave her inspiration. And she said, would you like some brownies? And he loved his mama's brownies. He said, yeah. He said, well, I'll whip up a batch right quick. And so she started whipping up the brownies. And as she did, said, now, I want you to do something. I want you to take this little jar here. I want you to go out in the yard and take this spoon here and just get me a little bit of doggy do in, in, in this jar, okay? Just a little bit. Son didn't know what the world was going on, but he went and did it. And uh, the uh, mom took the jar when it came back, took the spoon, and she just tapped a little bit of doggy do there into the batter. She whipped it up real good and made the brownies. And then she said, well, okay, here's a brownie. He said, I'm not going to eat that. And uh, she said, why? It's got stuff in it. And then she said, but it's just got a little bit of stuff in it. Doesn't matter whether it's a little or a lot. When it comes to the things of God, it's all or nothing when it comes to the things of God. We've got to get our focus. We've got to be pure in heart. And once, and see, this is just it. As we said, we're describing something. We've, we've been, we've received mercy. We're washed. We're cleansed. And, uh, all of a sudden, we know what it's like to be free from guilt. We know what it's like to know God's presence with us. How would we ever want to turn from that? Instead, we want to continue in that state. I, when my first church was in the oil field, and uh, they had a, in, in, outside of Kilgore, and they had a, uh, a saying out there about somebody being as useless as a swamper with a new pair of shoes. 
And the thing is, a swamper was a guy that worked on the oil rig and uh, helped go. He was a gopher, more or less, went and got stuff and uh, had to hop off of the a truck and run and grab stuff. And, you know, it's muddy and ooky and you get things. And they would always, whenever a swamper came along with a new pair of shoes, somebody would also always stomp on it and just rub it with their foot. So they get some production out of that uh, swamper that day because he's going to be trying to be careful and not scratch up his shoes. Well, that's the way that we should be when it comes to sin, you see. We should be like a swamper with a new pair of shoes. We don't want to mess up this life. But somehow it's going to happen, isn't it? But there's a difference once you've been transformed and you know the presence of the Lord in your life. There's a difference when you sin. And, and whenever you've just been living in the world. As Dr. Charles Allen said, uh, that the difference between a sheep and a hog is that if a hog falls in the mud, it just stays there and wallows. If a sheep falls in the mud, it bleats until its master comes, shepherd comes and gets it out. And so when we wind up stained with sin, we don't like it. And we cry out to God and we ask for forgiveness. And we become pure once more when he pours his forgiveness upon us. David epitomized this after his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan came and confronted him with his sin. And uh, as he's crying out to God, because you know it says that David was a man after God's own heart. He knew what it was like to be in the presence of God. He knew what it was like to have God's Holy Spirit dwelling with him. And all of a sudden, that presence was gone. He cried out to God. And in his prayer, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Just as Helen Keller would never want to go back to the way things were before she and Annie made contact, we never want to go back to the way things were before we came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then there's a promise there, for they shall see God. Whenever you get your focus on Him and you're not distracted by the world anymore, all of a sudden you begin to see God at work all around you. You see Him in places you didn't even know that He was. So where are you today in this continuum? Have you started? Have you recognized that you need Him and that you can't be pure without Him? Are you further along that continuum? I encourage you to uh, review this, not as a list of moral teachings, but as a progression into a deeper and deeper love relationship with God and a deeper and deeper walk in the Christian life. Where are you? And if maybe you can look back and you can remember when you were close to him and you're not there anymore, you can have his presence once more. He's just waiting for you 
to desire a pure heart. Call out to him just as David did, and he can give you once more a pure heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.